VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, August the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's the producer of the Come On With It edition of Open Line. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. Well, much like it was difficult to get excited to watch the World Junior Championships, which we won in dramatic fashion, same thing for the Women's World Hockey Championships. Tried to tune in a little bit yesterday to watch Canada open up the tournament, defend their title against Finland, beat them 4-1. Some of the notables, Nurse, Poulain, Mickelson, Turnbull, all hit the score sheet. Looking good. I can't get enough watching Marie-Philippe Poulain. I mean, she's just something else. What a goal scorer that woman is. I would play the Swiss tomorrow in game number two. Maybe a bit more summer-like. Watched a bit of the CP Women's Open from the Ottawa Hunting Golf Club yesterday. It's our national championship, of course, on the LPGA. Brooke Henderson, I don't know if she gets enough attention. She's the most successful professional golfer ever from this country with the two majors she's got in her back pocket. Not necessarily the opener she was hoping for. She's playing about an hour north of her hometown, Smith's Falls. She got off to a reasonable start, 269, not what she was hoping for. The leader's at 9-under. But she's looking up at a couple of other Canadians. Uh, Zverev played pretty well. Zaretsky played pretty well. Alana Sharp is in the field. And get a load of this. There's a 12-year-old girl named Lucy Lynn from Vancouver. She qualified to play in the event. Youngest player ever to do so. Carded a 3-over-74 on a big ballpark track. I mean, there's how many amateur players, men and women around the world? 74 is completely out of reach. And at 12 years of age, on that stage and that pressure, she shoots 74. Unbelievable. 12 years old? Out there with the best in the world? Truly amazing stuff. And let's get a little baseball update sticking with the sounds of summer. Mark Healy, who's the director of female baseball in this province, I love what he did yesterday. So after they opened up their national championships, he sent along a concise update email to what happened yesterday. Sometimes I'd love to see all the scores come by. I'd love to give the shout-outs where I can. But it's kind of difficult to find all the scores sometimes. You know, we don't get a whole lot of reporting from the championships, wherever they may be in whatever sport, which I think would be a great idea for all these directors to do that because... People want to know. So Team NL yesterday at the, uh, the the Girls Baseball National Championships. So Team NL opened day one with a five-inning 14-4 victory over Team Manitoba. These are the U16s. Jada Lee took the mound and led us to the victory there. Uh, player of the game was Molly Healy. She had a double to RBI, scored two runs. Julia McCarthy had three hits in the victory. Game two, lost to Saskatchewan, 19-9 in that particular effort. So uh, Lorna Pike had a couple of hits. Deneen Walsh a couple of hits. Jasmine and Batstone a couple of base knockers and the uh, player of the game was indeed Janine Walsh love that please send along your sports so we can talk about it on the show okay what's this oh yeah so you know with all the activities and physical activity and organized events there's not enough physical activity in school I don't think there is you know, there's some schools that don't have a gym, and when we get into the late in the fall and through the winter, getting even outside for a bit of fresh air, stretch your legs, is not available. If you read through some of the research done into what makes for a healthy day, it's not only food in your belly, but a bit of fresh air and stretching your legs. There's actually well-understood research out there about how boys and girls learn differently. 
including how much physical activity makes for maximizing a day in classroom for especially boys. So we wonder about that. And yesterday I brought it up and I wonder where we are in hiring teachers for this particular school year. And of course, like other years, they're not all in place. Now, nothing uh, that's out of the ordinary here, but there's still the advertising of 19 permanent positions, 15 of them are in Labrador. They're also trying to hire or finish hiring 100 teacher replacement positions, many of them right here on the Avalon Peninsula. So even when th the deadline for these jobs is Friday, but when they go away, it doesn't mean the job has been filled. You look at some more rural parts of the province, the story does indeed include uh, Jens Haven Memorial School in Nain. They're trying to fill four more positions. You know, trying to possibly rely on their contingency plans if they can't come up with the teachers. But this is not out of the ordinary, but it's unfortunate. Not only for the students who may show up without a permanent homeroom teacher in place, or a student assistant, or whatever the case may be, but it also puts the teacher on the back foot to try to be prepared to get off to a good start, because we all know getting off to a good start goes a long way for a successful, content, happy year in whatever grade you're attending. So they're still working on that particular issue. People refer to the teacher shortage, and apparently it's very real. And we've long talked about the shortage of substitute teachers, but here's where it's difficult sometimes to square the circle. If we have a shortage of teachers, how and why are there so many teachers who are on the substitute list who have been there for years, waiting, looking for, anticipating a permanent full-time offer? Now, some teachers, I think, are happy enough to be on the sub-list. If it works out for you and you get a replacement position, for instance, for a portion or the entirety of the year, comes with a little bit of an incentive on a pay bump. Some substitute teachers might be happy enough with getting a call and working there two or three days a week, but you know full well there's tons of them that would love to be able to set up shop, know that they're going to spend the entire year in grade three at Vanier Elementary or wherever it is so they can plan their future a little bit more solidly. So that's happening. Also, with yesterday, the life-saving awards, you've heard me bring this up in the past. I know some schools do a great job in attending to first aid, some of these lifelong skills that may indeed come to the point where you can save one of your buddies' lives. And we've heard this story in the past, and I'll bring it up again because it's just such a great one. And the child didn't learn it in school. And this is nine-year-old Simon Hart. He learned, we're not supposed to call it the Heimlich anymore, but everyone knows what the Heimlich maneuver is, right? So I'm gonna say it. So he was taught the Heimlich at home and consequently, when Nanny was choking on, I think it was a crust of a sandwich, he was able to jump to her aid, saved her life. You know, just think about in school, one of the popular snacks, well, certainly was amongst my boys and, and their buddies, were grapes. They're gobbling them down as quick as can be so they can get out in the yard and play a game of tag or whatever they're doing. You know, you take, you snip off one-eighth of the grape with your incisors, next thing you know, the seven-eighths are down your throat. Just imagine how quickly things can go sideways, but if everyone in the playground had an idea and had a bit of training and were showed how to do things and the calm that that offers, you never know. Even if it only boils, I shouldn't say if or only, if there is a life safe because we spent some time in school talking about how to treat a deep cut and or choking, whatever the case may be, might be a good idea to expand some of those offerings in school. What do you think? And congratulations to all who received the Life Saving Awards yesterday at the ceremony, which was at the Anglican Cathedral here in town, of course, hosted annually by the St. John's St. John Ambulance. Sometimes I throw an S on that one. St. John Ambulance. All right, stick with food. You know, unfortunately, and we know this to be true, so many children 
their best opportunity to get something decent and healthy to eat is at school. The good work done by Kids Eat Smart and the School Lunch Association, they're doing awesome work, and we should be very thankful that they're there. The Kids Eat Smart have penetrated so many schools in the province. School Lunch Association, with a little bump in their uh, funding from the province, hopefully will be able to expand their offerings as well. But that's the reality, and it's shameful, isn't it? You know, you heard me, I don't know how many times. Four to five million Canadians relying full-time on food banks is also a distinct failure in governance. But this is a really interesting story I read this morning. It's about the best before dates on your food, the labeling. For starters, on some products, you need to break out the electron microscope to be able to read it. And it's blurry, and it's at the bottom of the jar over on, it's not flat territory or terrain, so you can't really read it in the first place. So it might be helpful if that was improved. But how many Canadians just open the fridge, open the cupboard, first thing you do is if you haven't seen the product in a while, you look at the best before date. So here's some of the numbers. And this was all conducted by the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dow University and the Angus Reed Institute. 30% of Canadians say that they oppose dropping the best before date. 32% they strongly oppose dropping the best before date. 27% said they would strongly support or support eliminating those date labels. This lady goes on to say that you can use milk a few days after the best before date. It's not tragic. Experts go on to say that the best before dates are just more like guidelines. It's about quality. It's about freshness. It doesn't mean that it has gone bad and you must throw it away. Some people rely on smell, texture, taste before they decide that that bit of yogurt is no longer fit to eat. But we're all influenced by these things. So 25% of the population relies in full on best before dates as an indicator of food safety. And so what the end result is, food that's perfectly good to eat, it might not be its 100% quality, the 100% freshness, the 100% taste, but it's very close to. And you know what? I will admit freely, I'm one of those 25% of Canadians. I look at the best before date, even though I know, and I've talked about this extensively, it doesn't mean it's gone bad. But if it's a dairy product, boy, I'm hard pressed to want to drink it or eat it. Now, there are some best before dates that we absolutely have to pay close attention to. Baby formula and liquid diet products, they say that when they've hit that date, out they go. We know that the Canadian food industry itself, excluding households, wastes an unavoidable amount of waste here is 8.79 million tons of potentially edible food each and every year. 8.79 million tons. You know, just like in my home, just like your home, look, I'm the garbage can. I'll eat leftovers. I do it. Like, no problem here. But we do indeed probably throw away some food that doesn't belong in the receptacle. It belongs in your belly. How many households are like that? How much can be saved not only out of your pocketbook, but to feed yourself who are hungry and or a quick turnaround at a food bank and or the large grocery chains and major food retailers having real solid agreements with organizations like Bridges to Hope or St. Vincent de Paul or whoever the case, whatever the case may be, so that the food is not bad. You can eat it. It can be part of the sustenance for so many people who are starving out there. But the best before date, I think that's an interesting conversation. And what do you do when you see the best before date? And unfortunately, some people, when we're asked, you know, grab a, a non-perishable or a food item to bring to the hockey game to make a food donation to the Community Food Sharing Association or what have you, sometimes the reach goes right to the back of the cupboard 
And but we've got to talk about that best before days. It's sort of a you know not only does it lead to food waste, but you got to think that there's a bit of economic upside in it for the food manufacturers, distributors, retailers. They know they know that the food is going in the garbage and it needn't be there. Now what happens when you throw away that sleeve of yogurt tubes or whatever? You go back to the grocery store and buy more. Probably before you needed to. So anyway, you want to take it on? Let's do that today. Oh, and next week, here comes the tax on sugary drinks, 20 cents a liter. There's still a lot of questions about exactly what is going on here, exactly what will be taxed. I mean, there's a list of what's exempt and what have you, and we can go through it if you're so inclined. I don't know if the retailers have all their questions asked by now. We do know there's the potential and worry at the manufacturing locations about how many jobs might be lost, but here comes the tax on sugary drinks. The unscientific poll, which is my email inbox, says that I'm going to say 75% of people think that it is just a money grab, tax grab. Now, I've read a couple of op-eds where people say it may indeed influence your behavior, encourage you to buy something that is, I mean, none of it's really great for you, but something that is less sugary, artificially sweetened. So here comes that tax you want to talk about. We can do it. Yesterday we talked about the disgraceful story of this one particular lady. I'll leave her name out of it. She's probably sick of hearing about it. It's about financial elder abuse. A follow-up story to that today that I read is a former bank manager from Clarenville. His name is Leo Bunnell. He is dedicating his retirement to advocate for seniors. The man also happens to be a senior. Spent 40 years in the business. He sat on a variety of provincial and federal advisory boards on seniors and aging, trying to educate the public on elder financial abuse. He does presentations at community groups, schools, and at banks. And as he points out, most cases there are three parties to this crime, the victim, the perpetrator, and the financial institution. I think we're going to try to speak with seniors in L this morning who do work on this front, and thankfully so. You know, he points to a couple of issues. For starters, when it's a family member who robs you blind, that's just unreal. An interesting facet of it is what might be some of the high turnover in some banks. Because if you're used to dealing with Cynthia at my bank, and she all of a sudden sees a bunch of transactions that are unlike me or unlike my mother's spending habits, and flags it and makes a call. Also, with some of the more rural parts of the country where they've closed their bank, and so no continuity of care for their elder, their elderly clients. So there's a lot to it, and hopefully seniors and elders are going to be able to make time for the show this morning. So bravo, Mr. Bunnell. We know, and this is not a knock, someday I hope to be a senior, the aging population means that it's more and more likely for these occurrences to increase. Secondly, you imagine full well that there are an awful load of seniors and their families who never disclose this. They're embarrassed that they let down their guard and it happened to them. So, like most things where the victims may indeed be embarrassed or there's a stigma or they just don't want to talk about it in public, they don't want to have to deal with anyone on the issue, it's probably more common than we e- even know about, but we're hoping to talk about that today. All right, a couple of quickies in the price of everything. Man, I can't make heads or tails out of the bloody PUB on the price of gas anymore. You know, some people used to, to laugh or to mock us when we said, well, gas is going up a couple of cents tonight. And inevitably, some people will say, after supper, Wheel of Fortune's done, I got the bonus prize, I'm going to Irving and I'm getting a few bucks worth of gas. Because for some people, 
every little bit counts. But when some of it was predictable, then it made it a little bit easier. Me, yesterday, gas down five cents. I went and got some gas yesterday. To wake up this morning, down another seven. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it's a real nuisance. And a lot of people would love to be able to save even just a few bucks. Just a few. But now with this, like, how can the market maneuvers and market sensitivities in the span of 24 hours, and for the third time this week, all of a sudden, oh, well, overnight, bang, another seven cents required. Now, it's a good thing. I'm glad gas is down. Hopefully, you can save a few bucks today. But at the other end of the spectrum, gas up another 7.9 cents a liter yesterday. Home heating, stove oil, both up by just about seven cents. So it's hard to follow along and understand what actually goes on with those prices, but here we go again. How are we doing on the phone here today? Let's come out with a Friday. Okay, I wasn't looking at my Christmas tree screen. Whatever you want to talk about. The hydrogen proposals are getting a lot of uh, attention, a lot of questions. We can talk about that. Happy to do it. The story that's developing regarding central health and the some of the monitors that they use to assess it was, wasn't a problem with the man, mammogram test. It was a problem with the technology used with three versus five megapixels at some of their stations, three of the nine. They've identified some errors, which is problematic. But, of course, equally troublesome is the fact that over the course of three years and the audits that have been conducted, this was never flagged. So we can take that on. Here are a lot on the VOC Morning Show this morning with Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey about the labor standoff in Mount Pearl. Getting pretty heated. Over the last few weeks, and here they are entering the wraith week, over the last few weeks, a bit more of a conciliatory tone, a positive tone, getting stuff done, coming to agreements. Now the city says they've offered what they're calling their final agreement, or final offer, pardon me. The union said, nope, sent it back. Now there's some details out there, so which I think really frustrates uh, the QP on this front. And then there's the possibility for some looming punishment in some form for some 13 members, which of course Sherry Hillier at QP saying that this is a big problem. So if you are on either side of it, you want to take it on today, let's go. We're on Twitter. Oh, before we get to that, I want to take a moment to say happy birthday to one of my neighbors, kind, lovely, generous, warm lady, Ray McCarthy. See you in the hood later on today, Ray, and the happiest of birthdays to you. She's a real doll and a real good friend of mine. So happy birthday, Ray. Hope you have an awesome day. We will see you later on. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get a tune going. It was today in history that Chrissy Hind, one of the coolest rock and rollers, in my personal opinion, first made their live debut opening for Strange Ways at the Unity Hall in Wakefield, England. Of course, Chrissy Hind and the Pretenders. So one of my fave tunes from their awesome catalog was released in 1984. When we come back, none of us are going to take the middle. You take your opinion and drive it home. But here's the pretenders with middle of the road. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two and say good morning to the host of The Wall Show with Dr. Mike Wall, which happens Thursdays at 7 p.m. right here on your VOCM and Sunday at 4 p.m. We're going to talk a little bit of food waste with Mike on line two. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Patty? Couldn't be better. How about you? Fantastic. Fantastic. Couldn't help but call in when I heard you talking about it this morning. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the food waste issue is monumental, whether it be at the retail level, whether it be in our own homes, how we're influenced to be so wasteful. But I brought up the best before day because I think, you know, what the poll says quite clearly, 25% of Canadians, that's how they uh, figure out whether or not they want to open up and consume whatever's in that package. And sometimes the food is perfectly good. Where do you come down on this one, Mike? 
Yeah, so I I was under the same school of thought as almost everybody else, and I did a recent episode on it, I think June 16th, with some folks from Second Harvest and from Loop Resources. And uh, they explained the same thing, is that there's only a select group of foods that we have to really watch out for with an expiry date versus a best-before date. And a best-before date is about quality, but not necessarily that the product is bad for us in any way. It's just that the, the manufacturers tend to think that it's uh, better before that date, so they're going to get the best quality product at that time, but not necessarily something that's bad for us and that was shocking to me well you know what i'm not shocked maybe because i'm part of the 25 percent. i know better i've talked about this in the past there's a couple of things like if it's something that is not dairy based i don't care i will eat it but anything like milk or yogurt or the like cheese out it goes i see a spot of blue on cheese when i know full well there's nothing wrong with it i leave it there for someone else in the house to eat Yeah, and I think the big thing for me, the, uh, the, uh, the aspect that really concerned me was just how much we were wasting by mm-hmm. doing this, right? Like, I think it, the stats that I read were 60% of the food in Canada is completely wasted, and 40% of it comes from household waste itself, right? The rest is from restaurants and from grocery stores, and a huge proportion of this food could be used not only for people, but in other ways. So this Loop Resources company I was looking at takes this food that has best before dates, for example, that might not be the highest quality, and is using it in other ways, things for animal feed or for fertilizers, and, and they're reusing it as opposed to throwing it in a dump and creating methane gas, which is going to destroy the environment, right? So, like, there's some real reasons that are bigger than just wasting food, you know, besides the financial implications for our households, right? Of course there is. You know, and it's all a different piece of... Uh, depends on who you are, where you are. I would imagine some of this food wastage is also dependent on your income. That's what makes a further complicated factor to this conversation. If someone who's really, really struggling, the best before date, nope. They'll open it. If it smells okay, the texture's okay, in it goes. Someone who may indeed be in a little bit more of a more stable economic footing might be paying clear adherence to the best before date, so it becomes complicated. It, it does, and ironically, food prices are, have gone the highest uh, grade of, rate of inflation since they first started measuring food prices in Canada this last year and a half. And when you look at how much an average household wastes, they waste between a thousand and two thousand dollars on average. And everybody can use a thousand to two thousand dollars in their bank account these days. And so, you know, when we look at how we buy food and how we plan out how we're going to use that food it tends to be the healthiest food that we have that tends to go bad first so that we throw away fruits and vegetables and the things we really need to consume that are also some of the most expensive things when we go to the grocery store so there is like a a conscious effort that we all need to make as consumers to number one be more responsible with but number two make sure that you know we're we're buying these foods when we need them so that we're getting them in our bodies and not throwing them away the fresh uh issue is also i guess another layer of complication because if I live in close proximity to a grocery store with fresh produce and product, I'm much more inclined to buy for one or two days. If I have to have a long trek in front of me for the healthier fresh produce or product, not only would I not buy any because it goes bad so quickly or some of the product does, or I end up wasting because I don't have that hour and a half trek round trip to go and get something fresh. So all of these issues, I guess like most everything we talk about, Mike, there's a different concern if I'm living in uh, the northern parts of the country, in Labrador in this case. There's a different concern if I'm living in an isolated rural community versus living in a highly populated uh, urban area like on the northeastern peninsula. So that's where I think governments struggle with policy because there isn't one size fits all, which doesn't mean it's impossible or insurmountable. It just means that we've got to spend a bit more time and a bit more elbow grease putting the proper policies in place. 
Agreed. And education. You know, 80% of towns in Newfoundland don't have a grocery store at their disposal, but the nutritional value of canned vegetables, besides the higher sodium in some cases, is typically similar. Frozen vegetables in particular are very good. And so learning about what we can do that are things that will preserve longer, that will last longer in our cupboards, but will still provide us that nutritional uh, value that we need, those are all things that, you know, we need to work on as well. So health literacy and education around things like food and what's good for us and what's not, these are all things that are important. What role does labeling play? Because you, once again, need to bring a magnifying glass and maybe a dictionary to understand what the labels mean, if you can possibly find the label in the list of ingredients, and to understand, you know, to break it down from the highly scientific to some bit more lay term, easy to understand labels. You really have to look long and hard for some labeling. What role do you think that plays in making wise choices? Massive. I mean, you know, we're never taught about two things that are really important, financial health and, and health in general, our own health. And so if you're looking at these labels, sometimes what, what companies can do to avoid things by having things like trans fats is they can lower the serving size so it doesn't cross that barrier that they have to say that it has trans fats in it because they've brought the serving size down so much that there's no longer enough trans fats to equal a gram or whatever has to show up for them to write it. So, you know, these are confusing and, and without the right interpretation, it's tough. But the rule I always told people, if you do have access to fresh food, things without labels are usually good for you. So an apple doesn't have a label, we know it's good, right? And it's like our, our lean protein sources and things like that 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 are, you know, that are inherently good because they, they don't have a label. So, you know, fruits and vegetables always good for us that way but but again can be difficult and there is a need for health literacy and education which is what we try and do with the show each week is is try and bring new topics to people and give them that aha moment so that it sparks their curiosity and they may go learn more on their own it wasn't that long ago when people became more health conscious you know long gone were the days where the doctor was smoking at the hospital and wiser choices were being made and all of a sudden food manufacturers they figured it out and so what they did is all of a sudden they rebranded some of their product as light when in fact mm. we found out years later it wasn't light so while we maybe hopefully change the focus and the approach to labeling we have to demand a little bit more honesty because just reducing serving size doesn't mean you're doing anything any healthier calling something light which might be marginally uh, more healthy for you really makes government's job not only try to create awareness amongst the population like me who are uneducated on this front but for the manufacturers to be patently and bluntly honest with the product and how they label it uh, true. I mean, a serving size. How people? How many people actually pick how much they're eating based on a serving size in general? Like they don't know what a serving size is, and so that's another challenge that we we have as well. So yeah, there's lots of work to be done. The nice thing is that it seems as though that health conscious sort of uh, mindset is starting to migrate more and more, and that could be that we've got an older population that's starting to face some of these challenges with health that are that come from lifestyle. Um, but in general, you know, with more information uh, comes greater access to information, and then that will you know hopefully spur some more health literacy, especially if we've got our policies on side to be able to help that. Yeah, because serving a size or a proper portion for many, including me for much of my adult life, was when the food starts to tip over the side of the plate. That's where you've got your ser your serving <laughs> size. And that's not necessarily, or obviously that's not the appropriate approach. Uh, anything else in summary, Mike, before we say goodbye? No, that's great. It's, uh, I think it's a great topic for people to dig into. And, uh, you know, they can check that out it's on VLCM.com. There's a full 44-minute episode on it, and it's really interesting for folks. So uh, thanks for bringing the topic up today, Patty. Happy to do it. So just to reiterate, uh, you can catch The Wall Show with Dr. Mike Wall right here on your VOCM Thursdays at 7 p.m., Sunday at 4 p.m., but you can always catch the shows on SoundCloud right at VOCM.com. If there's a topic of your choosing, Mike has probably covered it in the world of wellness and healthy lifestyle. Good to have you on, Mike. See you around. 
Take care. See ya. Okay, bye-bye. There you go. That was good. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Trevor wants to talk about teacher shortages. Then we're going to go to Labrador, talk about the visit of uh, Minister of Defense, Anita Anand. Some investment going into Five Wing Goose Bay, one of the four northern uh, stops that are going to be modernized in our effort for continental defense, NORAD. But no commitment to enhancing air search and rescue capacity in Labrador, which is ridiculous. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number 5. Uh, good morning, Zheng Wang. You're on the air. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Uh, I'm an international student. I started my program, Software Development Co-op, last fall. Okay. Um, because I did not find my first workshop placement this summer, so my uh, school system flagged me out by mistake. And I tried so hard to get me back to the system. I'm close to it, but I was desperate because I started doing this business, doing this thing start, uh, start from August the 2nd. And it's nearly a month now. Okay, I just want to make sure I understand what's happening here. So you started your program last fall. Yes. You were unable to secure your work term placement this summer. What kind of uh-huh. assistance does CNA put forward to find a work placement opportunity for their students? Well, um, they gave us some job, job ads and let us to try to get an interview with a field. And they told us, it's okay if you did not send any work placement the first time. Then we can post the work term to uh, the next work term period. It should be okay. But I was flagged out that system. So because of this, what's the uh-huh. outcome here? Does that mean that your coursework is derailed? You're not unable to get but back this term? What happens? The outcome was... I cannot register back this fall. It's like I'm not an active student anymore. The school understands my situation and decide how to do it um, as the policy says and blah, blah, blah. Now it wants me to pay the nearly $4,000 to confirm my seat first. And then the will get me back to the system. But my problem is I won't have the money till September. And now they want me they want me the money. They I have to borrow the money now. So here we are clamoring for people to bring their skills to the province, whether it be from other parts of Canada or other parts of the country, and you were unable to secure a work term, which is obviously going to be fairly difficult in the first place. And because of that, you have to go back to step one. You're being treated as a brand new student with the readmission fees and the $4,000 charge. Is that what's happening? Yeah. And they charged me for $99 readmission fee, and I did that. It's all quite strange, and it's really, you know, the strict nature of this stuff, as opposed to being helpful, as opposed to a barrier. I'm really surprised that it's happening this way to you. Is there uh-huh. someone working, whether it be for a student union type of representation or an advocate that you can lean on and get some of their horsepower to try to deal with it? Because I think what classes started the seventh or the ninth, maybe at CNA. Yes. 
Okay. Is there is there an advocate, someone who can take up your cause, like a union representative at CNA? <sighs> Student union, I mean? I don't know. Let me try to find out, Zheng. So, uh, Dave, I believe we not only have your number now, but Dave has your email address. I yeah. think there's got to be someone as part of the student body that can take up uh, your cause actually, and help you. Okay, sir, um, go ahead. I already borrowed some money now. I should have the money ready today. So my problem will be solved today. Yeah, it's unfortunate I had to go down that road. So maybe, yeah. uh, if you're at all interested in this, if there's someone who's willing to be your ally and to help deal with this issue, it may indeed be solved for you today, but it might, might not be solved for a friend of yours or a fellow uh, a foreign international student that might face a similar issue in the, in the future. So oh, maybe, just my maybe. My is also <coughs> international student. He, has, he is in the same boat, and I have another classmate I have another, at least two classmates who's in the same boat, but they are domestic students. So their problems get fixed really fast. Okay, so in summary, would you like me to try to find someone to help on this front so that you can deal with not only your own circumstance, but to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else in the future? A bit of flexibility afforded by CNA? Okay, sure. Okay. I can help. Okay, so that's what I'm going to do. I'll have a look around. I'll be able to find somebody. Uh, David has your phone number and your email address. When we have more information, we'll share it with you, and you can do with it as you see fit. How does that sound? Sounds good, but I'm working full-time uh, in the summer now. Okay. So let's see, let's see what we can do. Uh, I wish you good luck. It's unfortunate that it came down to having to borrow money when a bit of flexibility would have solved this issue a little bit easier on you and the school. Appreciate your time, Shueng. Uh, good luck this year. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. I mean, look, I know rules are rules for a reason, right? And we don't need to be obliterating rules every time that someone has a sad story, I'll call it. But when you factor in foreign international students and people say you know inside of immigration we'd love to have people who are bringing the skill set that's required here's someone working on software development which is absolutely going to be a skill set required in an industry that is crying for more and more people to work in it and that you know if the money if she was going to be able to access it by the 1st of September and maybe not have to be forced to be readmitted and an associated fee with you know, it doesn't mean that rules have gone and that's it. Every time anyone says, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, and we say, okay, that's it, too bad. No rules are stand anymore. But you factor in all of the different variables to make probably better decisions, don't you? All right, uh, what are we at here, Dave? I suppose I should take a break. And I appreciate the patience of everyone in the queue. We did mention Leo Bonnell, a retired bank manager from Clarenville, devoting his retirement to advocate for seniors, especially dealing with the issue of financial elder abuse. When we come back, now I appreciate your patience, Murph. Hopefully you'll hang around. Same with you, Trevor, regarding teacher shortages. But Elizabeth Siegel from Seniors NL, we're going to talk about that subject, maybe offer some advice for additional protections for the seniors in your world. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Director of Information and Referral Services at Seniors NL. That's Elizabeth Siegel. Good morning, Elizabeth. You're on the air. Good morning. Happy to have you back on the program, Elizabeth. You and I have had this conversation many times about elder abuse, whether it be mentally, emotionally, physically. In this instance, we'll talk about financially. The story is out there. Miss Toomey, who were once trusted family members, robbed all her money. And then Leo Bunnell, who's advocating for seniors. Your organization does great work. Where should we start? in our conversation about financial elder abuse? 
Well, I think the first step is awareness, and I just wanted to say hats off to Lillian and her son for coming forward because financial abuse goes on all the time, and until someone is brave enough to actually come forward, put their face to it and their personal story, it sort of gets pushed aside. So I I know she went through something horrible, but in my eyes, she's a hero for bringing this kind of awareness because it's a very personal story, and it's something we hear all the time. And it comes in many forms. So, you know, in this case, we know that Miss Toomey in particular sold the family home to her daughter and son-in-law for $1 in exchange for care. Then when hospitalized, and of course she needed someone to take care of paying her bills, what have you, what kind of formal protections can be put in place? Is it a matter of a conversation with your bank or financial institution? Is it a matter of formalizing with power of attorney? What do you say? Because we might trust the people who are around us who love us and we love them, but the next thing you know our money's gone and no protections were done or put in place what do people do well, one, th- one place to start is I would suggest actually having two different bank accounts. So if you're, and I, you know, we say don't give your debit card to anyone, but I know sometimes it's people are really stuck. But if you are going to do that, have a bank account and just have a small amount of money in it. Maybe have your bank transfer $100 or $200 into it every month. So if you're giving someone access to an account, it's a very small account as opposed to your life savings. Um, and the second thing I would suggest is to keep an eye on your balance, no matter what. Um, and again, we know for some people that might be difficult, but telephone banking, you know, if you don't understand it, maybe uh, a friend or someone in your family can do it, and then you can constantly check your bank account, even if you're not doing ba- uh, bill payment and that sort of thing. So, um, and, and awareness with your family, you know, if someone's doing your banking for you, make sure everybody in the family is aware of that. You can have p- different people look at bank statements. Um, but honestly, the number one thing, and I hate to say this, is that truly you can't trust anyone, not even family. Um, we hear elder abuse stories similar to Lillian's probably two or three times a month, and it's truly heartbreaking. I mean, that's a great idea about two separate bank accounts, one for covering your bills, one for your life savings that is protected from everybody. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Is there a way, like, for instance, with my credit card, the company will call me if there's some unusual transactions. Like if I all of a sudden have a credit card transaction show up in London, England, but I haven't been out of St. John's in five years, they'll call me and say, you know, is that you? Is there a way to set up some oversight at the bank or is that something they can't offer simply because of the volume of business they're doing? I think they can do it, and I know that's what Leo Bonnell has been working for. And, you know, even things like if a bank teller sees uh, maybe a senior coming in and it's always with the same person and they're always withdrawing a lot of cash at the same time, you know, ask a question. Say, can we talk to you in another room just about your account and find out what's going on? Because, yeah, if if someone doesn't raise the alarm, it's going to continue. For the alarm to be as loud as we needed, for the red flags to be as rouge as required, what do you say to folks out there who have been in this situation? They're embarrassed. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want people to know that they let their guard down. But if we hear more and more stories, then the work that Leo Bonnell is doing, the work that you're doing, becomes a bit more manageable because people understand how rampant it is. And the banks might be willing to work with seniors more and more easily because they see how rampant it is. What do you say to folks who have been victimized by this but have never told their story? I I would say that you're not alone. Um, It's way more common than people think. And, you know, I hope you are able to come forward and get some help. The interesting thing, I think, in Lillian's case, 
um, is that they both pursued a, a civil, they went to civil court to see if they could get the money back, and they pressed criminal charges. And I understand sometimes, you know, people are not willing to press criminal charges against family. Mm-hmm. But if you go to civil court, you're not pressing charges, and you're, you're making them, you know, pay for what they've done. Um, so that's an alternative that I think people maybe need to be more aware of, that civil court may help them to get some of their money back. In Ms. Toomey's case, uh, she was awarded the maximum by the judge in the civil matter, and the two in question pled guilty to a charge in criminal court. So you're right. It might be you're furious and you're devastated, but you don't want to see a criminal record be the end result. But that doesn't mean there's not other ways to recoup your money, to get some of this back, to get back on track, to put, do away with your worries that all of a sudden you worked so hard all your life, you had just enough to hopefully keep the wolf away from the door. Then you've de- been devastated. So getting some money back might be a course that people should consider. Uh, anything else you want to say about this this morning, Elizabeth? Because it's a heartbreaking story, and we know full well that Miss Toomey is the furthest thing from alone. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think there really is a degree of ageism in this. Um, people thinking that maybe a senior doesn't need their money. You know, why are they spending my inheritance? And the truth is, it's their money till the day they die, and it should be improving their care and quality of life. So I think people have to respect that. Here, here. Always nice of you to make time for the program, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Elizabeth Siegel, Director of Information and Referral Services at Seniors NL. They do good work. Uh, let's go to line number three. Trevor, you're on the air. Okay. Hey, good morning, Patty. How you doing? Great, sir. You? Good, thank you. Uh, the connection is poor. Trevor, just take a couple of dodges left to right and see if we can clear it up. Okay. That's better. Go ahead. All right. I want to call about the teacher shortages? Sure. Okay. Um, so it was on the news a few days ago, maybe last week, the minister was indicating that uh, there are 170 graduates per year uh, through Memorial. Mm-hmm. Uh, approximately half of those would be K to 6. Another half would be 7 to 12. So 170 seems like a, a large number, but there's, sometimes it's about the devil in the details. Uh, in my particular school here in the city, we had five interns as part of that program last year. Three of them were from out of province. And even though tuition is higher for them, still a good program nationally known to come down here, but also the cost to come down for a year um, is less. So of that 170, <clears throat> you're looking at a large portion of those teachers who will be trained and will leave the province because they're from away. Okay. So that's one issue there. Um, Another issue is that you're right, for many years, the substitute list was probably just as large or larger than the number of teachers in the system. And obviously a lot of people would have gotten discouraged. And our understanding is, you know, you substitute for a few years and then you can't get in the system. It's harder to get in the system. There's so many people, so many teachers available. Uh, A lot of people will leave the province. A lot of people will go into other careers. And although they have the teaching background, they'll establish themselves in another career, and then they're not available. As well, registration to Memorial, when when you hear, when it gets to the grapevine, that there's just not a lot of jobs available, um, a lot of times people will not go into the faculty. Um, So that's causing some issues as well. Um, sometimes it's about, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but sometimes it's an urban and rural issue. Uh, a lot of young teachers will often um, come in from rural areas or come in to go to university and then wish to stay in a larger urban area, perhaps meet a partner, 
and then aren't as willing to to go uh, to go out around the bay. Um, it was told to me this year that um, it, last June, that when you looked at number of subs on the sub list and you looked at the number of positions that were available in St. John's, there apparently wasn't even enough subs to fill all the positions. Uh, number-wise. Now, of course, it doesn't work that way because it works by seniority. And our understanding is that that's going to get worse as, as uh, worse this year as well. Again, just through demographics and through changes uh, in the system that way. Uh, we know that there's trouble. You had the, the member on for Lab City uh, regarding housing. There's, there's always been issues uh, as well on the coast of Labrador. There are sometimes uh, more issues in rural positions. And I know and it's a bit of a controversial topic, but in a particular school in this city, I was told uh, last year, two younger teachers simply passed in their keys, just on out in terms of the stresses and that that come within the education system and discover this is not really for me, and, and they leave. So you have a lot of combinations whereby, you know, there used to be a lot of subs available. There used to be a lot of opportunities. And now what's happening with seniority this year is that as a permanent teacher, there used to be a cutoff point whereby I couldn't apply for other positions and I had to stay with my same school. Uh, due to some changes in the collective bargaining agreements with NLT and government the last couple of agreements, more is based on seniority now. So at this point, you still have some senior teachers, even this late in the year, uh, jockeying for looking to switch schools and, and different positions and such. But again, if you could extrapolate that 170, when in my school, three out of five of the interns were definitely leaving the province because they were from out of province. And go even back further, the number of high school graduates is decreasing as the student enrollment decreases across the province. Now, we don't see that as much in the city, of course. But overall, most years, our overall K-12 population drops between 1,000 and 2,000. I think the last year or so was an anomaly where it stayed constant. And you just simply have less people then, of course, going to mom and then less people uh, going into the faculty. And it, I don't think it would even be a case at this point if, if the faculty of education would open up more spots, if necessarily there would be the bodies to go into it. So in many ways, we're not where the nurses are, but for the first time in my career, and I've been at this for 25-plus years, this shortage is getting worse by the year. And there's, there's a lot of factors, like some of the ones I just mentioned, that are causing that. I mean, it's like everything else. You know, when we just stand back and say, well, we have a shortage. Well, what contributes to the shortage? And what might be able to be done about that? And, you know, I know teachers, it's a unique situation compared to, say, healthcare professionals. But there's a lot of similarities. In central health, they can tell us, well, we hired 39 doctors. Okay, well, what about the 45 that retired or left? So we're down net six. And so sometimes, unless we understand why you left, who you are, where you're willing to work, what we need to do to attract you to work in Nain versus work in Mount Pearl, and you do graduates is an excellent example that you started the conversation with. 170 grads might be bis- misleading if not all 170 are willing to work somewhere in this province. So that 170 is sort of irrelevant. So you're making some key points here this morning, Trevor. Okay, thank you. And and that's that's some of the and there's a lot more moving parts than that. But those are some of the some of the some of the main moving parts that go with it. And like I said, stress and burnout within the system. And if you take for example that 170, let's I don't know, safer round numbers half stay in the province. Well, if that's 80, approximately, to stay in the province, we at this point also have an aging workforce within within the situation, and you have more retirements now. In the last two or three years, I spoke to a, a person at the NLTA about this. There are actually more retirements in the last three or four years for the first time ever than there are available graduates. 
So that's that's another issue as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and this is the annual issue that we deal with. You know, we're told that there's nothing to worry about because this is about where we are every year at this moment in time. But that doesn't mean it's good enough. <laughs> that, that's cold comfort, for I would imagine, for the families of school-aged children. Uh, last word goes to you, Trevor. No, I'll just say that again. It's, it's, I, I don't think it's really a, a, a government issue in terms of that, like uh, who, who decides they're going to get the degrees. Uh, it's not a teacher issue. You punch your 30 years and you want to retire. Um, if it's a lifestyle issue, again, that's not, a, not necessarily a government issue. So it's not as much controversial as demographically things are occurring um, that are making it more like the nurses now. And um, there are a lot of, lot of different factors because of that. That's it. Appreciate your time, Trevor. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. All the best. Bye-bye. All right. Appreciate that. Uh, good chat. Uh, appreciate Marvin's patience. He's in the queue. He wants to talk about search and rescue in Labrador and the Minister of Defense, Anita Anand's visit to Five Wing Goose. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go. Line number one, Merv, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty, and thank you for the space um, to talk about this search and, re- search and rescue matter in Labrador. I just feel compelled, uh, um, you know, to, to speak up, and of course, I'm speaking through the lens of CNL as well, who has so officially expressed our disappointment uh, stemming from the announcement in uh, Goose Bay uh, by the National Defence Minister, Anita Anand. Um, and the uh, backdrop to that is, as you described earlier, was the commitment by the federal government of uh, $38.6 billion over a 20-year period um, to upgrade um, uh, four strategic uh, air bases um, under NORAD. And, of course, uh, the announcement was all about the commitment to Goose Bay as being part of that, that kind of a scenario. Um, leading up to that, you know, I think a lot of people were fairly convinced that there was going to be a significant uh, announcement with regard to the announcement of uh, search and rescue. Um, I know that uh, President Todd Russell, the president of the uh, Nunatuavut uh, Community Council, was there, as was Wally Anderson, an elected official from the Nunatuavut government. Uh, and, of course, they came away with with an expression of, of, of dismay, I believe, other than, than disappointment, that, that there was not that kind of a commitment there. And, of course, adding to that, uh, we know that the minister was accompanied by the elected uh, MP for that area, Yvonne Jones. And there's no one knows this issue better than Yvonne Jones. I happened to be present in Mary's Harbor during the presentation to the uh, ground search and rescue inquiry under uh, Commissioner Judge Gliriarty last fall, and she had a, a wonderful presentation there. And, of course, at the front end of that presentation was very much the, the role of Five Wing Goose Bay. And, of course, the, the, the Nunatuvit uh, recommendation, uh, you know, within the scope of their presentation, put uh, Five Wing Goose Bay at the very front end of its recommendation, you know, to enhance it and to make it a primary, a dedicated uh, search and rescue base. I mean, this is a world-class uh, facility. Let there be no doubt about that. And and with all of that money, uh, I think they've, uh, it was announced by the minister on Wednesday that uh, something around $16 billion, uh, would be earmarked for new infrastructure. And I guess that would mean aircraft and 
all the other things that would be needed to to back up that kind of an operation, uh, but yet uh, no commitment to uh, to make this a primary search and rescue base similar to Ganner, similar to, to Greenwood and other places across Canada. And uh, again, looking back at uh, the backdrop to all of this, the fact that the Goose Bay, in terms of aviation, really is the gateway to the north, and we know where, where that's going these days. The north is opening up. And we know the serious deficiency that exists along the Labrador coast from a maritime standpoint, as well as the ground search and rescue issues, which were profiled at the, you know, at the at the, the very focal point, uh, talking about the lack of resources available for humanitarian assistance from the aviation portion of it, and of course the you know the the up and coming issues around resource development uh, along the Labrador coast and well into the north. Uh, what a strategic point to to earmark uh, this uh, very important base to you know to be a primary search and rescue unit. Eddie, that's before I say anything else. There, I just wanted to 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 make a comment on the difference between secondary and and the primary part of it because you know the the minister had indicated that they're there, they're willing, they're ready to help. And, and of course, uh, we know that. Uh, you know, we have the Griffin helicopters that's there. And in fact, when you, we had the Burton Winters uh, case, and I have to go back to that again because it really is the elephant in the room, or it was, and the fact that there was no uh, search and rescue resources from a, a federal standpoint uh, available. Uh, the Griffin helicopters were taken apart in pieces on the floor. Uh, waiting for for maintenance repairs and so on that would not happen in a primary situation in a dedicated situation with a with the the standby posture that's required and uh, you know consequently you know a, a life was lost and uh, we'll never know the full role of that but you know I'm pretty convinced that there was a significant role so we've had all of the the all of the examples to illustrate to us why this makes so much sense Patty well and there was also the the issue where where does provincial jurisdiction end and federal begin, which was unhelpful in the Burton Winter circumstance. You know, it's fine and dandy to spend well, almost $40 billion uh, on mil- four military bases over the course of 20 years. They talk about air weapon systems and surveillance systems. When, yes, there's been uh, more provincial money going to search and rescue, but that's on the ground. We know how much time will be lost in the expansive nature that is Labrador. And then when we talk about at sea and searches, you mentioned Mary's Harbor, so Mark Russell and Joy Jenkins lost. You know, had we been able to respond as soon as someone said there's something wrong, the ability to respond, time is obviously of the essence. You know, I don't even know where we factor in conversations around EPIRBs, even though I think they should almost be mandatory. But it's easy enough for me to spend other people's money for an emergency position indicating radio beacon. But I think it's extraordinarily disappointing. And I tried to, you know, put this in Minister Bill Blair's Ballywick as the minister responsible for emergency preparedness. There's nothing quite like being prepared for emergency by having the resources and the infrastructure where it's most needed. And that in this province, I would suggest, is Labrador, even though as far back as the Hickman inquiry into the loss of the Ocean Ranger, 24-7 search and rescue capacity and capabilities in St. John's, that hasn't come to pass. So I guess we'll be holding our breath for Labrador to get the enhancement for air service because it's so desperately and obviously needed. For anybody to not be able to see the need is just not paying attention. No, I, I agree. And, you know, you can talk forever around it. There's so many points to be made. I mean, I know that Yvonne Jones is left to roast now, as I'm sure uh, there's uh, no one that would have liked to see this announcement uh, any better than her. But she had to stand by and, and, you know, watch the kind of announcement that was made, which was not a bad deal. Let's face it, very, very positive. We, we know that. 
You know, and, uh, and and going back to, we've been to the very uh, top with regard to recommendations on that. The Senate report that Fabian Manny had shared that uh, an all-party makeup uh, recommended, uh, one of the key recommendations was to uh, do something in Goose Bay with Five Wing, even as a pilot project, if you want to bring in private resources and so on. So there's been so many desperate attempts uh, to highlight and to profile the issues that's there. Uh, and to try to get the Five Wing Goose Day engaged with uh, all of all of the resources that they that they have available, and it, like, in terms of emergency preparedness, and in terms of the full scope of being prepared in Goose Day, not only for for surveillance and defence and so on, but the the uh, the capacity that's provided by a search and rescue unit for people to be trained you know every day they're executing search and rescue cases and that training for emergency preparedness in all facets even in during war times and whatever the case might be it's it, it now it presents itself there uh and gives us that ability too so it, it what a perfect fit uh for you know what's announced there and what's to come so i suppose uh we can only say at this juncture and that's why People with the big mouths, I suppose, like myself, and I hope people don't get tired of, uh, of, of, of a broken record here on this, is to keep hammering away because we do have a world-class uh, air base there. Uh, we, we now have – well, we have existing facilities. We have D&D staff, trained people, and so on. And limited uh, search and rescue resources, only albeit in a secondary capacity. But uh, now we have, you know, $38.6 billion over the next 20 years that's earmarked to improve things. So now let's get, let's get smart. And, and you know, and, and to the Minister of National Defense, the minister responsible, the lead minister responsible for search and rescue in Canada, you know, for God's sakes, you know, let's. Uh, Let's get our act together, and uh, you know what are we waiting for? Let, let's make uh, Five Wing Goose Bay, um, you know, one of one of the the, the 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 top sites for primary search and rescue in Canada. Appreciate the time, Merv. Okay, dog. Thank you. Thank Pat. you. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a car show out in Central. You won't hear it zoom by. It's electric vehicles. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the co-founder of Drive Electric NL. That's John Siri. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today, sir. How about you? Uh, not too bad. So we're on our way out to Clarenville for our road show stop in Clarenville at noon today. And uh, just stopped in here at Whitburn to uh, charge up the car a bit. Uh, coming on out with her travel trailer in tow as well to show what the electric cars can do. What are people going to see? What kind of cars do you have and what kind of questions are you going to be fielding or able to answer? Well, we've got uh, a couple of different Tesla cars. There's also a variety of more uh, affordable and practical ones being on the show now. We have the Nissan Leaf and the Bolt uh, coming there, and uh, also a Volvo and uh, Audi e-tron and a few others like that. Uh, in the coming months, though, we're hoping to see uh, a few more of the more practical cars. In other words, less about the electric um, luxury ones and more like the trucks are coming. Hoping to see those in the next couple of weeks or months, and uh, also some more of the uh, slightly more affordable SUV crossover types. 
one of my friends, I think, has one of the Ford uh, F-150 electric vehicles on order, which is interesting because it's all happening so quickly, isn't it? So we hear stories about North Vault AB signing deals with Valet, Mercedes-Benz and Volkswagen signing deals with the country and maybe opportunities for jobs. But I think it does speak to the fact that, you know, we're still shy on infrastructure. It's moving along. It's heading in the right direction. But before long, affordability and price point and uh, federal and provincial assistance and access to more and more product. Before we know it, we're going to be at a place for critical mass, which is required for anybody to really get involved in this, you know, because before you know it, like the used car dealership next to me, it won't be all ICEs. There'll be a collection of EVs there as well. So it's all happening fairly quickly, isn't it, John? Oh, yes. Yeah. We Well, we're seeing just yesterday, California said... That's it. 2035, which is, what, 12, 12 and a bit years from now, Yep. You're, you're not going to be able to buy a gas car. That's California. That's that's the entire population of Canada in here in North America has said, that's it. It's only going to be a zero-emission vehicle, so most of the time that's that's electric. So you can see what that's going to do to what's available you know, around North America. In Europe and certainly in Norway, it's already there. Uh, Norway has surpassed 90% of new vehicle sales are fully electric, and their climate and environment is very similar to ours. They're making the financial incentives very attractive in Norway. That's one thing for sure. California is the fifth largest economy in the world, so that's notable. France, I think, is in a similar position with EVs uh, at, regarding 2035 and grandfathering in whatever ICEs or internal combustion engines around the road, making that move. Uh, John, I know that you recently received a grant from the federal government to set up a resource center. What can people access through your research or your resource center? What are you doing? Sure. So the uh, the roadshow is the road version of the resource center. The resource center is set up on 10 Pippi Place in St. John's. That's right there behind the post office. And people can drop in and get that information that they need, that they, they want to get that comfort level before they make the purchase. So they want the information as to you know, where they should order, how long in advance, what sort of charger they might want to have at home. And we have the chargers available there for purchase, which is very handy. A lot of people appreciate that because then they can look at the different kinds and, uh, and get suggestions as to who could help install and so on. Uh, coming up in September, we're going to be offering test drives. Test drive vehicles will be on display there. Our hours will go back from our summer hours to our fall hours, which means a lot more availability. And uh, we'll be we'll be advertising, you know, uh, various meetup events that will start in September. Certainly with Drive Electric Week and uh, September 20th, I think it is this year. So we'll have a lot more activity starting now once the fall season rolls around. Uh, those that are coming in are finding it really, really useful. A uh, lot of, you know, a lot of good questions being asked in certain circumstances where people might uh, want to know the best thing to do for a charger if they're renting or if they're downtown or if they're in a multi-unit building. So we've got some suggestions and guidance for those sorts of, of uh, scenarios, and just generally good advice between different EV owners. Uh, you know, you're getting it from people that already own them, people who are answering those questions themselves have already sorted it out and given that perspective without a you know the pressure of being in a sales room so a lot of people really enjoy that kind of experience and we're going to build on that uh john very quickly before we run out of time where can people catch you in central today so we're at Clarenville today at noon for noon to two at the farm and market uh right there on the highway so we'll see us in about uh, an hour and a half and i uh, would love to see you there Tomorrow we're in Gander at Cobb's 
on Rotary Park on McGee Road from 12 until 3, and we're partnering with Take Charge to have their vehicles and uh, displays on as well. So there'll be lots of good information there and lots of owners with their cars. And would love to see anybody that's thinking about this or has questions to come on out and help us answer what you need to know. Appreciate the time, John. Safe travels. Stay in touch. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. It's John Seary, co-founder of Drive Electric NL. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to a familiar voice, a friend of mine, a friend of yours, Jonathan Richler. Jonathan, you're on the air. Good afternoon. Good morning. I don't know. Is it morning? It's still morning, isn't it? Good morning. still morning. If it's afternoon and I'm still on the air, something has gone horribly wrong. Come on with us. Um, listen, great conversations as always. Had an opportunity to listen in today. And Patty, just um, hearing the chatter and the conversations about um, taxes on sugary beverages, frankly, uh, I'm full support of this because it's turning our eyes inward as to how we can eat healthier. So, Dr. Wall had some great points. I just want to, um, as did you, about throwing food out, but I want to just remind everybody, the growing season is very short in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, and right now, it's paradise. This is when the harvest happens, and if you want the freshest and healthiest food that doesn't sit on any truck for any period of time, now is your opportunity. And luckily, there are major supermarket chains that uh, support local farmers. You don't have to go very far. There's St. John's Farmer's Market, of course, is on a metro bus route. You can go there on Saturdays and feast your eyes upon uh, the freshest of ingredients. And there are other farmers Lester's comes to mind, and Mark's Market out in Wooddale, which is just by Grand Falls. Beautiful time to uh, take advantage of healthy food that's grown right here. So just a a nudge for everyone to uh, consider when they're filling their shopping bags over the next month that uh, support your local farmers. I think people anticipate this time of year, to be honest. Maybe it's just where my social circle lies, but... People do talk about the freshness of ingredients and local taste so much different. I mean, just buy a carrot that was grown here versus one that is really super orange that's been imported. They're two different things. They just are. So I think a lot of people look forward to this time of year. Maybe it's just because I hear people talk about it in my social circles and me and some of my buddies, we pretend that we're good cooks and we talk about ingredients every now and then. So hopefully that's a widespread uh, uh, anticipation for the fall harvest, which, of course, as you say, is the utopian time of year for those of us interested. 100%. It's the best time to uh, to take pride in what uh, comes from our dirt. And as we continue our conversations about uh, the fact that this province is a natural resource province, let's uh, support our own human resources uh, that are growing things for us. Uh, and they work so hard all year. And here it is. So, uh, guys, get out there and you would be surprised. And you will always be pleased when you bite into the crispest romaine lettuce. Or, my goodness, Patty, I just got 300 pounds of pickling cucumbers from Mark's Market out in Wooddale. Wonderful. It's heaven. It's heaven. And uh, season's short, so go fill your boots and your belly. And with the short season and some of the additional pressures this year, I'll be curious to hear from the umbrella associations and individual farmers how they manage the increase in costs, whether it be food, feed, and fertilizer, because that has an impact we know full well it does. Margins are already pretty tight. Access to big retail shelves is not as easy as if you're one of the big mega farms or super corporate farms. So there's a lot of moving parts this year in the agricultural business. It's 
always alarming to me that people are so willing and wanting to clamor for subsidies and tax breaks and credits to big industries like oil and mining and whatnot, but yet bemoan the small or medium-sized farmer with supports to get through these tricky times, economically speaking. So let's see where they all land here uh, come this fall. I'll be curious to hear that. Uh, on the, the front of the short season, I may have oversimplified this in my own head when I talk about it, but I don't know why we don't spend more time regarding food security and insecurity with peppering the landscape of small, medium, and large greenhouses. The technology has advanced way down the road. It could create jobs, manu- or pardon me, produce food, solve a lot of issues with one fell swoop. Am I on the wrong track, or do you think there's more to the conversation, Jonathan? Uh, quick point on the cost of, uh, of goods. Uh, we need to factor in uh, the, the cost of tractors and trucks as well sure. and how diesel and, and petroleum affects the farmers and maintenance for their vehicles. Uh, a couple of my friends uh, took out you know, some major loans to, to get their, their gear. And uh, it, the government is there uh, for major purchases like that. But uh, labor, human labor, uh, is part of what sets some farms uh, from growing from small to medium. There's just nobody who wants to, or is unable to uh, to work um, those long days and, and bent over. With regards to uh, the seasons, we're ta- you, we're yeah, I think we know we extend the season by using some yeah. of the advancing technology, yeah. even as fundamental as a greenhouse, because they've got experiments going right here at the Lane Dobbin Center with Iron Earth, I think is the group. I think there's opportunities there to address a variety of different issues, food security, insecurity, price point, access, with growing more where we are. I would love to see more involvement uh, from the government. I think this province has a, a political hangover when it comes to greenhouse technology, which is ridiculous. Uh, all these decades later, um, and and that sort of is is one of the factors. The other factor is you have to have the appropriate land uh, to to place these greenhouses. Back when I was in uh, the chair in that studio, there was a gentleman who sent me a proposal. It was in Deer Lake, I think. I'm not sure whatever happened uh, to that, but uh, that was uh, five or six years ago. There have been some some startup greenhouses. I know Sean Majumder had uh, one which was funded by the government for his food festival called The Gathering, which is out in Burlington. There are some ideas for for startup greenhouses. Uh, It's just a question of making sure that you have the the proper uh, staff uh, to keep the facility running. Um, So it is just just like we have shortages for teachers and and everything else. the skill sets involved in operating these are uh, are tricky. So that's I would love to have more conversations about uh, this because you're right, it is the future. Particularly, we had a great summer, super hot, also super dry. Uh, so if you have a contained environment like a greenhouse, you can control your humidity and your water levels uh, with the flick of a switch. And with the flip of a switch, we can recognize labor force demands at CNA and other vocational schools with greenhouse technology and courses, technology courses. So we give you a skill, we get you a job, we produce some food. I mean, there's a lot more to it, I know. I'm, sometimes I'm, I'm apt to just say, well, let's just do it. I mean, lots of different things have to happen, but they can happen concurrently, and they needn't be cost-intensive, and they can have really massive positive outcomes. We don't chase things enough, and let's forget about Sprung. I mean, $22 million debacle. Okay. You know, there's lots of different things regarding some corruption involved, not just, you know, ahead of its time, technologically speaking. But uh, let's have these chats. Uh, Jonathan, last word to you. 
Last word to me is, uh, gosh, uh, happy weekend, everybody. <laughs> you too, brother. I think uh, I'm enjoying stirring the pot with you, and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll see the dialogue on this continue. Uh, hope to see you soon, brother. You too, pal. Take care. Take care. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. Good stuff there. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Casper's in the queue to talk about the Hoyles Escazoni site right there on the Cove Road. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Casper, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you, buddy? Great today. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, sir. I'm fantastic. Uh, yes, I did have a, I did have a, something to talk about but with the Escasoni, but if I could inject in the, when you were talking to the gentleman from the, about the search and rescue and that, you know, given uh, myself having 18-year service with the Coast Guard, I know too well about... You know, this is this. We're on the we're on the end of the worst place as you could be out at sea. You know what I mean? And and when you got a if you got a search and rescue station that's that's going to take longer than than the rescue itself. Like some when we be doing uh, we be doing Saracals. Like I remember my first search and rescue was the Melinda and Keith. We were 12 hours away from that boat. You know what I mean? Like and but anyway, you know the need is there. Somebody should really, you know, just look at what's going on. Now, the second thing about the electric vehicles, Patty, I understand, you know what, it's a really good thing, you know, because with the fossil fuels and the emissions and all that. But can I ask you one straight-up question? Sure. What, what benefit... Uh, what benefit do you think with the electric vehicles, everybody turning with the electric vehicles and trying to phase out fuel and all that, what benefit do you think you think that it has for the, for the, world, like for the world and the environment? And I'll tell you what, what will ha- what's going to happen, but we don't see it now. We won't see it, but later on down the road. And we'll, we'll mention California because you mentioned that too. But what is the benefit? What do you think is the benefit, benefit of everything electric? Uh, it's never going to be everything electric. I think the hybrids will rule the roost, to be honest with you. Oh, yeah. uh, I, well, from what I've read, which has been a fair bit, from the initial design and engineering and production and distribution and 10-year life cycle, which is about average for even internal combustion engines, if we're talking total emissions all in from all of it, repurposing batteries at the end of 10 years, how much more efficient than the evolution of solid-state batteries, it clearly has less emissions from start to finish than an ICE. Is anything perfect regarding the environment, regarding mining and human rights and slave labor? No, of course not. But I think what would be most attractive for most people is operation costs. There is well, no Eddie, question. If I, can, if I can inject there, you know, there are all great points that you're making, but the one point that you didn't make Which is, what? is the demand that's going to be on the electricity. Like, California has a job now to stay even lit up. They have to have breaks during the day. They have their peak periods. Mm-hmm. Electricity, the demand on, on lines that have been built probably 50, 60 years ago, like, say, Hollywood out there, they would not be able, Hollywood would not be able to take on, as the world, the people get bigger. Well, you know, what I'm trying to say to you is, yes, it's a great thing with electric and all that, but the demand and, 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 and what it's going to do to the environment and put to with, with electricity and you know what I mean like this you you remember back that that PC uh, up in California that PC hydro thing they, they they had a they had a tower 
it was dry, like dry season in the tower, and they, they never done the maintenance on a hook. And when the hook let go, it struck one of the wires, which caused a spark and burnt down half a half of the, 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 the California. Yeah. All right. So that, that's all right. That's that's the only point I want to make about that. Yes, it's great with electric vehicles, but it's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt because for all the re- infrastructure that's gonna have to be changed, like. Uh, but that's all I got to say about okay, it. Okay, but just okay. Okay, let's bring that back to the yeah, advent yeah, yeah. of the gas-powered vehicle, the diesel-powered vehicle. Yep. Take it from when they were for the Uber rich, all the way to now. There's more two-car families than, than otherwise in North America. The infrastructure had to be built: gas stations, and pipelines, and distribution, tr- and trucks, and and anything a pipe, anything else you want to throw into it. The infrastructure came when the demand was required. I don't know why we can think or say that we can't keep up with demand for how we power these electric vehicles because remember in the future some of them are going to be powered by hydrogen not just electric charges in a solid state battery or poly lithium I'm just pointing out that like it's one listen Patty you want to talk about you want to talk about that power and stuff like that we got we got a we got a debacle out there in Muscat Frals that's not even pushing nothing out yet there's not a turbine even turning so in regards to that, I'm just saying, like, in the long run, like, the, the, the benefit of the electric vehicles, it's going to put a surge on the demand for electricity when half of the world is, is you know what I mean, are, are in disarray and this and that. All right, not to get off that topic, I wanted to just inject another thing. I heard that, you know, you get together with all your buddies and that, and I would like to think that you're one of my buddies. I was just talking to Bish just then because Bish was listening now, and I said, Bish, I think I'm up next. And now some petty said, oh, I just want to say uh, hello to a friend of mine and a friend of yours. And I was getting ready to say, hey, Patty, what do you have, buddy? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's because Jonathan spent some time on the air here and people would oh, know, know his I name. I carry on, but so my, 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 the, th- the third thing that will be, uh, I am a chef, Patty, you know, that 18 years service as a ship's cook, executive chef. And if anybody out there on the, in the wire is looking for somebody, I got credentials and I'm available for work uh, anytime. Uh, now, to get on to the main thing about uh, we're Eskizoni. just getting to the main thing now. Yep, Eskazoni. Quickly. Like, yep, no problem. Uh, like you know, you look at the government, you know, approves projects and the city approves projects for for buildings and stuff like that. But here we are in 2022, and we still got people that are homeless living on the streets. Uh, what I want to say very quick, you know, the government owns that building. The government can benefit two, uh, benefit two ways. One, having the building operational and having the residents that are on low-income income that are, that, are in a, that are in a place that right now, but you'd have some criteria. Like, if you know, if you're getting a government check, like, you know, a social assistance check, then some of that, the government is calling some of that back for, for you to actually stay in a, in a spot over there in one of them rooms. And then, you know, it, the thing is, it'd be almost like... Uh, uh, that other place down there on uh, on on what um, was it Gower Street, uh, the halfway house, whatever I don't know what is uh, the drop-in center, whatever he all sleeps down there. But what I'm trying to say is like that building sits idle while people people are uh, people are on the street. And I'm I know it's summertime now, but the winter is coming up. And like I said, I'm not a politician. I don't have a whole I don't have a whole lot of knowledge when it comes to politics and that. But when you read it, like you see it, and you see a building there, and and you say that you say government, look. If you're paying a man $950 a month to live in a bed sitting room, 
why not? And then you worry about all the all apparently people, all people does is spend their money on drugs and drinking and all that. You'd have something regulated that you find if you want to live here and you're going to and the government is getting a portion of their money back. If you want to live here, then it helps with uh, almost like sobriety and and different things. You know, I just thought I'd throw it out there. But Patty, I just want to say. You're the best. I love you, man. I always did. I appreciate the last time we spoke when you said you can call me anytime, personally, whatever, and we are friends, or we're friends a long time. And if he ever needs any any cooking any cooking tips, I, I can certainly hook you up, all buddy. Thanks, Casper. And I was going to see Bish the other day. It was on Monday, uh, just before the parade. Him and his daughter, Bree, came in to yeah. get a signature and a picture with Alex, which was great as well. Was great, uh, good yeah. talking to you, Casper. I, Take yes, care. One quick, one quick thing. Patty, why do you call a boomerang that don't come back? An arrow. No, a stick. Oh, oh got to go. Big hey, Casper, all the best. Have a great day, brother. You too, man. Bye-bye. All right, break time. When we come back, Megan's there to talk about the housing crunch. Where? We'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Megan. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Yeah, um, I, I guess I just want to talk about um, what I'm going through and get my um, get my story out there. Um I'm a single mom. I have five children. Um, we've been staying with family now for uh, close on two months. Um, I've inquired to hundreds of houses, hundreds of ads. I've only really gotten to view about a quarter of those. It's it's actually crazy. <laughs> it's, um, there's bidding wars going on. Um, I, I've viewed a couple of um, houses and um, after I'm done viewing the house, I'll ask some questions about uh, the rent and if it's POU or whatnot. And I've had a couple of landlords tell me, well, it was, um, say, 1700 but we've been offered more, so we're going to go with them. Um, I've had landlords tell me that um, I have too many children. I've even resorted to rehoming my dog because I've had trouble looking at places and mentioning to them that I have a dog and five children as well. So it's been pretty hard. Look, the the vacancy rate, the price of a rental unit, you know, whether or not you have a pet, of course, which for many people is extremely difficult to try to navigate. It's a real yeah. problem out there for a lot of folks. I mean, when you see from or hear from a woman in paradise who puts a, uh, a basement apartment up for rent and within the blink of an eye, there's 400 requests to have a viewing, you know we've got ourselves a problem here. And there's a variety of reasons as to why it is the way it is. So outside yeah. of family... And the trouble you're having coming up with a place, a safe place, a healthy place for you and your five children, what's next? Because at some point, sleeping at the relatives or on the floor or whatever becomes unmanageable as well. So what's your plan here? What are you hoping to even like to achieve that where I might be able to help or a listener might be able to help today? I, I don't know. I mean, myself and my children, we've been staying with family now for um, a couple of months, and we've been sleeping on air mattresses and the couch in the living room. Um, my children are coming to me all the time. They're crying. They're saying, Mommy, I don't know why we can't find a place to live, um, and asking me questions like, have you heard back from any of the places that we've viewed? And as a mom trying to protect your kids, you don't know how to answer those questions. And me, myself, like, I don't really have the answer to it because I don't know why we're being turned away. Um, 
I, I've contacted a lot of community support, um, like uh, Stella Circle, Choices for Youth, um, the Iris Kirby House, um, Newfoundland Labrador Housing, CSFD. Nobody seems to have a place for six people, and it's, it's very heartbreaking. You know, I, we spoke with uh, Lisa from... Um Stella Circle, not Lisa, I'm sorry, what's her name? Laura, Laura, at Stella Circle, about the new phenomenon they are seeing of family homelessness. You know, we know there'll be couples without a home, possibly lots of individuals, but family homelessness is becoming more and more of a concern, and very few, if any, programs and or shelters to deal with families. So it's remarkable. I don't know what, how much work uh, Laura's been able to do on this front and whether or not there's been anything that's come of it, but have you connected with Stella Circle to see? Because we, I actually talked to Laura about this exact issue on this program, so she may have come up with some ideas or some uh, places maybe to point you for some advice or for some help, so have you contacted that group? I heard you uh, list off a bunch, including Iris Kirby and the NLHC, but have you tried Stella Circle? I have, yeah. Um, okay. There's one person there that I spoke with um, He's been uh, helping me. He's been working alongside of um, Kevin with Choices for Youth. So um, they're both trying to help me find housing with Newfoundland Labrador Housing as well as St. John's Housing. But it just seems like there's there's nowhere. There's there's no units available. There's another outfit called In Homelessness St. John's. Uh, mm-hmm. And Doug Pawson works there. Let me see. Uh, what I'm going to do, Megan, is... Uh, I'm going to put you on hold. Dave, can you drum up a number for Doug? Dave Williams? Oh, he's on the phone with somebody else. But I'm going to put you on hold. I'm going to get David to give you another contact. I also have someone in the landlord business who has units that sometimes he hears these conversations and he's able to help us connect you with maybe a unit or someone who might have a unit. So I'm going to try to throw a couple of tentacles out there and see if I can help you and your five children. So, Dave, what I was asking you to do while you're on the phone is can you get Doug Poston's number? for Megan so we'll do that you'll be on hold you'll speak with David we'll give you that number and I'll go to a couple of the folks I know just see if they can give me some idea if there's any help available that we can help connect you how's that great thank you so much okay you're on hold here's Dave all right so man, those stories all right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. My, my favorite is when you join us live on the air. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning. Jody Williams. Down. He's the manager of Bridges to Hope. Good morning, Jody. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Top shelf, man. How you doing? Good, my friend. Great. I call in now and uh, chime in on the uh, best before conversation. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, so... I mean, I just uh, I haven't caught much of the show. I just noticed there. I was driving it earlier. I caught the beginning of it. Uh, I guess there was an article going around on CBC and stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, like here at the food bank, for instance, we use canned food and stuff up to a year beyond that date, and then we're allowed to by Health Canada. There is no real uh, say date where it's kind of gone bad. Um, 
Now, that applies to, like, cookies, crackers, you know, any kind of dry products or anything. Uh, we don't use any, like, mayonnaise base or any of that stuff, of course. No baby food or anything kind of goes out on the date. Now, most of that stuff has an actual expiry date, so there is a difference. A lot of stuff has expiry date, but most things have the best before date. Um you know, it's different here at the food bank. We can't look in the can and say, so, you know, I only go as far as a year. But at my home, <laughs> uh, I mean, I go kind of by, you know, the look of the can. Is it swollen, bulging? Uh, is there any rips and tears in the packaging? When you open it, does it kind of have a smell? I mean, I've opened cans that were two to three years after the date, and they were fine. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's a lot of room in there to, uh, you know, to, to cut back on the wastage, for sure. Absolutely. And the expiry date versus best before date are two completely different things. Like when we talk about baby formula and liquid diet products, when the mm-hmm. date on those products, have re- you've reached that date, that's it. They are no longer safe to consume. So the I think the interesting part of this is just how many people fall into the best before as the be-all and end-all regarding food safety, as opposed to knowing that it's simply about quality and freshness and nutritional value, which is diminished somewhat by that date. Absolutely could be consumed, but the poll that was uh, the survey that was done, 25% of the population of the country relies in full on the best before date. And consequently, what adds up in their black bin to be picked up by the city of St. John's or whatever uh, garbage company, it's going into the landfill. When we know full well, it needn't be that way. So I just think between understanding what best before means, how products are labeled, we can probably do something to deal with the food industry that wastes the avoidable waste of just about 9 million tons of food. We don't even know what the household number is, but you can imagine we're talking 15, 18, 20 million tons of food being wasted annually in this country. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, most food wasted is uh, in the home. I mean, most people would probably think that it's uh, restaurants. I mean, I was a chef for my whole life, and uh, I guarantee you restaurants are the last place to waste food. Uh, You know, like it really is in the home, and I I guarantee you there's a correlation between – I guess, you know, how uh, how wealthy someone is uh, to the food wastes down to, you know, if you're someone who's very unfortunate or marginalized, uh, you know, there's probably not a lot of uh, canned food in your cupboard, you know, but uh, a lot of people, me, myself, I have a cupboard that's full of uh, stuff that I kind of keep pushing to the back, uh, you know, I'm guilty of myself, of course, uh, but, you know, there's, I think the, there's a bit of uh, some privilege in there, of course, and of course, you know, like the more likely you are to, there's a the, the difference between someone who shops at Costco and someone who shops at No Frills. I mean, they're not in the same income bracket. You know what I mean? And we're all, you know, what we all buy the uh, eight pack of uh, avocados. I'm <laughs> hoping we'll eat them and tend to throw half of them out. Um, so there's a there's a big discrepancy there between I guess the kind of uh, how wealthy someone is. I, I think there's a the more wealthy people are, the more likely the food is to be wasted. In my opinion, honestly, I don't dispute that for one single second. It just stands to reason. If I'm struggling, the best before date. So today is what the 26th of August. I pick up something in my house that says best before date 25th of August. I disregard it in full. If someone who has no qualms with going to the grocery store sees the best before date and says, nah, I'm not taking chance it goes in the trash Mm -hmm. you're 100 right jody of course you are i bet yeah well put it this way i bet if there was a store that happened to open and sold (laughs) sold canned food that was you know dated that day uh best before and it was say half price i guarantee you people shop there 
they would now you know just I think it gets a little bit fuzzy at some of the big retailers you'll mm-hmm. see a label where it was packaged on and that product all of a sudden is a, for selling for two dollars less it has a little orange sticker on it that becomes attractive all of a sudden but had they not put that two dollars on it and you saw a package down and you didn't like the look of it they maybe didn't buy it so we're getting a little bit of misleading info labeling and pricing when it comes to these places as well i think at, you know one of the big uh multi or big national grocery store change the chains they have this little place called or a little set aside in the store called the flash food things that are yep. close so mm-hmm. they kind of do it but they don't yep. do it to attract more shoppers it's only if it happens to catch your eye yeah i mean there's a there's a point here too right there needs to be legislative change you know what i mean like right now there's no there's no penalty for a company throwing out four bill or like whatever it is quarter million pounds of food a year Whereas in some European countries, you would penalize for that. You can't wait until something's gone bad to try to sell it 50% off that day. you got to manage that better, you know, and try to uh, distribute it to, to, some, to some other, like, food banks or whatever. So there's some legislative stuff in there, obviously, too. Uh, of course, when you're a big corporation, there's always liable issues that people are concerned about. Uh, I want to mention something, too, uh, as far as there's a thing um, – you know, people are probably not aware. We call it food rescue in the food bank game. Uh, basically, it's when kind of, uh, you know, companies go out of their way to uh, give us food that is outdated or is about to be outdated. Uh, so I do want to let people know if there's any, uh, like, you know, the TREs of the world and stuff out there. Because some of these companies don't know, and they do throw out pallets of food that, you know, is outdated. We can take that food here at, at Bridges to Hope. Uh, so I'm just throwing that out there. If anyone owns any mom and pop shops or anything, uh, you know, again, it's no need to throw it out. Certainly, uh, we will definitely put it to good use. And we know we can do better. I mean, if we can reduce the numbers of people relying on a food bank, you know, the four or five million Canadians with a variety Absolutely. of different approaches, if we can do more to ensure that, you know, it's a limit of once a month or once every six, six weeks you can go to one food bank or another, if we know that we can put more product in your hand, more money in your hand so you can stretch out a $10 bill further than I can, we can start mm-hmm. to do better. We can do better. I mean, Absolutely. first world modernized country like Canada, and we are where we are, it's not good enough, you know. If it wasn't for groups like yours, Community Food Sharing Association, Bridges to Hope, mm-hmm. St. Vincent de Paul, and on and on we can go, Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. Just imagine, government would never be able to pick up that slack, never in a million years. <laughs> no, no. Definitely not. Jody, keep up the good work, man. Appreciate the time. All right, my friend. Enjoy Take care. the rest of your day. Same to you. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Jody Williams, the manager down at Bridges. To hope. Uh, David, will I take uh, Maggie here first? No, let's go. Okay, line number one. Good morning, Emmy. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, so earlier this morning, uh, there was a article you guys did, or a po- uh, story you guys did about an elder abuse case, and um, these people in this case are my family, okay, and my aunt and uncle who are being charged. Everything that is being said about them is incorrect, and they're receiving threatening messages and. People are harassing them, and I'm just hoping that I'm allowed to share a bit about what I know about the situation. Okay. Uh, I'm happy to try to get uh, information and the so-called two sides. What I'm less interested in is who inside the family dislikes anybody else in their family or what have you. So what's inaccurate in the story? So um, my grandmother lived with my aunt and uncle 
for about five years, a little less than five years. And she had a total of $16,000 in her savings. My aunt and uncle, she flew to Nova Scotia where my aunt and uncle were currently living and begged them to take the house because she couldn't afford it anymore. She needed help and that's, that's, completely, that's completely okay. But she wasn't making any money. So for this, this $16,000 went to build. And because people are seeing these charges used for personal, this charges made on her card is her paying them back for, bill, for her bills that they're paying. Okay, so I mean the house sold for a dollar, so there's some change uh, in transfer of equity there. But some of the purchases that jump off the new story, it's hard to understand how they have anything to do with managing a hospitalized eighty-year-old woman's uh, monies and affairs. You know more about it than I do. You're part of the family. So whether it be like yeah. a purchase at a, a marijuana shop or a purchase at an Apple store, those types of things, that's where suspicions become. I think well-founded. And you're telling me that we shouldn't be suspicious of those types of purchases? If, if not, I why not? I, I absolutely think that those are suspicious-looking purchases. But when you look at it, that she only had $16,000, and they're paying bills constantly. Like she said, she was having $800-$900 power bills, and those weren't, like, she and she, she was paying them by herself. And... They were they used her card for personal charges because that was that, that was her paying the bet. I don't think what the chart what the I don't think what the card was used for should be any debate because it was it, it was their money that they were being paid back. Wouldn't the power bill that was your grandmother's all of a sudden also become uh, the responsibility and power consumed by the two people in question? They were doing that. That was their agreement when they moved in that she was going to take care of the power bill and they were going to take care of everything else. They always made sure she was fed. There was never any. There were times when I went up to visit when I was young, when they had her, and we would be down in the campground about an hour half away. And any time they cooked any big meal, jigs dinner, anything like that, they would drive it down to her. And they did. They did so much for her that it just. It's, it's, it's disheartening to see, like, they're being violently harassed online by people who know one side of the story, and I guess it's just frustrating. Violent harassment of anybody for anything on these fronts where inside the family dynamic there's, I would imagine, lots, lots of complications. But given what you've talked about this morning, Emmy, when the story also goes on to talk about that there was a statement of claim filed by your grandmother for nearly $25,000, a judge adjudicated the testimony offered by all sides and awarded her the maximum amount. So some of these things have been settled. In addition to the civil matter, uh, the two people in question have also pled guilty in a criminal proceeding as well. So... You know, that's where I think the story for many seems to be settled and solved, regardless of personal conflict and like, dislike, love or disdain, which I'm not so sure how factors into the dollars and cents. So a criminal ruling has been made, a guilty plea has been offered in criminal court. How do you want people to view that? Because that's clearly been part of the story. Absolutely. They pleaded guilty because um, my grandmother's son has them absolutely tortured. 
and they just wanted it to be over. They wanted to not have to deal with it anymore, and he was willing to drag this out for years, and they, they wanted it to be over with. They wanted to live their life in peace, but he still, he still isn't stopping. Because there's no... Um, we were on the phone. He called us last night and said the only reason he wasn't going after us is because we don't have any money. So to me, this whole thing, her, her son doing this, it's all, it's all about money. And there's no, like, there was no actual wrong done. And they're, and that would be absolutely the only reason they pleaded guilty was because they were so done dealing with the police for something they didn't, that they didn't do. It's a, it's a, um, Difficult spot for me to navigate. I have no interest in attacking, harassing uh, the two folks who have been mentioned in the civil matter and in the criminal matter and or you or Paul. For starters, I don't know either of you. And inside the the ebbs and flows, the dynamics of a family, it's no, it's no position for me. To, it's no place for me to stick my nose. But when, we spoke, when I spoke about it, I do based on what I can see uh, regarding the facts. So whether it be purchases that are kind of inexplicable for a hospitalized woman, Line of credit expanded or over the limit by $3,000. Guilty pleas, uh, civil rulings. I can only speak about the issues as they're presented to me factually. Inside of the other backstory and the motivations, there's no possible way for me to understand it, nor do I know how I would even would incorporate it, to be honest with you. We've extended the conversation to financial elder abuse as a real issue that devastates so many people in this province and across the country. So this story has, I'm sure, gotten a lot of attention and brought a lot of negative uh, attention to the folks we're talking about here and that's I don't know how we ever avoid that in this world where that becomes the go-to and it's a uh, fire and brimstone before any second thought is given to anything so I mean I, 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 I'm not in a position to say that I'm sorry I brought it up because I think it's an important matter that I'd be betraying this job if I didn't bring it up and this story I can only speak to the facts as I read them and we were happy enough obviously to give you a chance on the program this morning to say whatever you wanted to say and we'll give you one more uh, time to say something else if you'd like to add to it Emmy um, and I really appreciate you giving, giving me the time and I understand how how the facts look I just wanted to just to I, I'm not even sure. <laughs> um, I just know that I love my my aunt and uncle, and I have witnessed. I've been watching this, all of this unfold the last five or six years, and it's just it's just heartbreaking because I know that they elder abuse is a very horrible, and people taking advantage of elders. I understand that completely, and I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. You don't need to be. Uh, and I, I wasn't trying to put you in a position to defend anything. I'm simply saying, from my perspective, where I sit, the topics I discuss, when I know that even if this story had never been out there, like, for instance, C Elizabeth Siegel from Seniors NL, without one story to pro prompt or to provoke the conversation, we've talked about this in the past because it's an issue, and we're going to have to continue to talk about it. And so sometimes when stories grab headlines, like this particular family story did, maybe just puts it back on the front burner, which is, I guess, why we did uh, speak 
speak to it. And while we had Elizabeth on, we spoke about it as a wide-ranging issue, not a family-specific issue, because that's an important chat that we really have to have to protect people who need protecting. Uh, I appreciate your time. I wish you well. Would you like to say anything else very quickly before I say goodbye? That's okay. Thank you very much. Take care. Good luck. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, there, apparently there's some uh, a little bit of an outbreak, a kennel cough. We'll hear from Dr. Maggie brown Brewery, and then we're going to speak with Eddie Joyce, the independent member for the Humber Bay of Islands. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number four. Good morning, Dr. Maggie brown Brewery. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How are you doing? Not too bad. Great. Uh, so I wanted just to have a quick chat with you um, because I've been hearing there's a lot of kennel cough happening out in the St. John's area for sure um, and hearing a lot about people heading to the emergency clinic with that and thought I could hopefully save some of your listeners some time, stress and money. What's kennel cough? Kennel cough is a layman's term for infectious bronchitis. Um, one way to think of it would be like a cold for a dog. Uh, and, and basically it's caused by either viruses or bacteria and it just creates inflammation in the chest and makes them cough a bunch. Uh, the cough can sound pretty gnarly because they're trying to bring up all the mucus um, from that inflammation. Um, there are vaccines for it, but they're are not vaccines for every potential cause. So every few years we seem to get an outbreak of it. Um, And and the thing is, because some of the causes are viral, there isn't really much to do but let it let it run its course. A friend of mine whose dog had uh, kennel cough and wouldn't refuse to drink enough water to do the toxin flush was eating ice cubes like it was nobody's business. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I usually say to people if, if friends contact me about it sort of thing is um, give it five days. As long as they're still eating and you're still getting some fluids into them, give it five days. If it hasn't run its course in five days, then you might want to see the veterinarian. Or if your pet stops eating and drinking or is really lethargic, um, in a very small percentage, it might progress to pneumonia. Uh, but for most dogs, their body's going to take care of it in about five days. Save yourself that cost of that emergency visit um, and uh, and just keep them sort of home, keep them quiet. Just for yourself, if you have a bad cough, if you go running, that cough will get worse. So you want to not be exercising a lot. You want, it is contagious. You want to keep them away from dog parks and things like that. But uh, but for the vast majority of dogs, uh, you know, just about five days and they should be over it. Um, and you definitely don't want to look for any kind of cough suppressant because they need to get that mucus up out of the chest. How contagious is it? Like, just say, for instance, I have a two-dog household. Do I have to separate my own dogs? Because I'm just wondering how in- infectious or, pardon me, contagious it would be. It is actually super contagious. Um, It would be very uncommon for one dog in the household to get it and the other dog not to have picked it up. I don't worry too much about separating them because by the time one is showing symptoms, they've both been exposed. But just like in a household, you know, a kid comes home from daycare with with the flu, not everyone in the household ends up getting really sick from it. It all kind of depends on how your immune system handles the situation. Um, So by the time you know one of your dogs has picked it up, then there's no point in separating them, but definitely keep an eye on on all members of the household. Can a human get it? From a dog? Uh, no, no, it's okay. uh, 
very much dog specific. Cats can sort of transmit it. Uh, they don't tend to get sick, but they certainly can sort of pick up some of the viruses that cause it and bring it wherever they go. So, um, you know, if you have a cat who goes outdoors, that can be a source of bringing home some bugs that might not make the cat sick, but could make your family dog sick. Well, hopefully uh, people listening to their dogs are spared from the tracheobronchitis, but appreciate the PSA this morning, doctor. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Take good care, Maggie. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Dr. Maggie Brown-Burry. little talk about camel cough. It's out there what you could and should do or be aware of. Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we'll hear what Eddie has to say right after this. Eddie Joyce, that is. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back to the show. Just very quickly, uh, let me get that out of here. We were talking to Casper about the Hoyles Escazoni complex, and it's not a government property any longer. I think Casper's point was that, you know, government with these types of buildings to repurpose them versus all the government assets that sit empty, whether they be old schools, long-term care facilities, or otherwise. I don't know if I should say, well, I suppose it's a public record. The uh, Escazoni itself is owned by the Orem Group of Companies. They are now looking for, they're going through the engineering process, permitting process, to turn it into a 100-bed personal care home and 14 assisted living apartments. So that's active uh, operational work going on at Escazoni in particular. Let's go to line number two, say good morning to the independent member for the Humber Bay of Islands. That's Eddie Joyce. Eddie, you're on the air. Uh, Patty, thank you again for taking my call. No problem. I'm, uh, I'm calling on the windmill project at the we seen all the hype this week uh, out in the steam area about it, um, but but I'm uh, I'm definitely not against development, um, and I'm definitely um, pro development. But we have to do it right, and we have to do it properly. Uh, and I know myself and Paul Lane maybe the only two is asking a lot of questions about it uh, in the legislature, but we will be asking a lot of questions. And as we can see, this project is sound, sounds like it's a full steam ahead, and it's almost like it, it, it's a done deal. The last time I seen this type of hype uh, on, on the project was Muskrat Falls. This won't be the monetary uh, uh, catastrophe of Muskrat Falls, but it may be the environmental catastrophe of Muskrat How Falls. How so? Why? Well, well, Petty, if you look at having the Chancellor of Germany making a, a, an announcement with the Prime Minister of Canada, an interim agreement, and John Risley stated in, um, in the Atlantic Business Magazine that when he heard the Chancellor of Germany was coming to Canada, he pushed every lever possible to get him to become the Steve Mill to make this announcement. So so here we are putting pressure on, on the local government. Andrew Ferry was there with all his ministers. Um, you're putting pressure on, on the people in the year that's going to be impacted, saying this is almost like a, like a done deal. And I, I just want to explain to people, um, this August 5th, the minister required to propose to prepare an environmental impact. An envi environmental assessment committee has been appointed for the EIS guidelines. December 3rd of this year, the minister due to deliver the environmental impact guidelines. They hadn't got the environmental impact guidelines yet. They don't even have the crown land process. The bigger point for me, Patty, on this here, John Risley is out publicly, and I can get the documents, saying that he needs the three phases to make this viable. Phase one now is is the is the uh, Stephen area port to port area. Okay, that's phase one. The other the other phases is the Lewis Hill Serpentine Blowdown and out around uh, out around the uh, the uh, port the uh, 
base in Georgia, okay? That's the second base. Someone in government, John Risley said this publicly, government told him to just to put in the phase one to get it done. Who in government is telling John Risley, is it the premier? Is it the minister? Is it, Who is telling him to just put in phase one? And then once you get phase one, now the, the impression then you're going to get the other phases. Why not? And this is this this will circumvent the whole environmental impact study. This is wrong. It started out wrong. This is, and if we don't get it right from the beginning, it will have a disaster, a disaster for the environment in Newfoundland, especially in Western Newfoundland. So we need, if you're John Risley and his company is going to do this right, do the whole impact study on the three phases. Nobody should be giving anybody a heads up and advice on how to get anything passed or approved by government. We'll all agree on that for sure, Eddie. What I'm curious about is what you view as environmental disaster. Because the, the work done in the Churchill River is different than a mine, which is different than this proposal. What you view as the massive concerns on the environment? If you had to prioritize one, two, or three areas, what would they be? Well, we just look at it first in Lewis Hill Serpentine Valley, which I'm more familiar with. Okay. There's more sensitive areas in there. That was classified as a park back in the 60s. A lot in Serpentine Lewis Hills up to this date, up to this date, you can't even build a cabin in there because the area is so sensitive. What's going to happen, the, the lifespan of, of these mills, uh, of these windmills, is 30, 35 years. What's going to happen when the lifespan is over? What's going to happen if the new technology comes up? If, if we need to look at um, uh, refurbishing, the cost of refurbishing, we don't have to look back, look at the Grand Falls Mill when it cost the, cost the uh, province $100 million to refurbish it, to, to scrap it, to take it, scrap it, not refurbish it, scrap it. That was ex- to expropriate, right? Expropriate. They took it, but it cost $100 million for the mill. Can you imagine what it's going to cost? For all these windmills? Uh, just so people know what we're talking about, when the province inadvertently, and everybody voted on it because we didn't take the time to debate it properly in the House of Assembly, we ended up expropriating the bloody mill. Yeah. And the $100 million you're talking about, to settle a free trade infringement, the federal government had to pay a $100 million, I guess penalty we'll call it, on that just ridiculous outcome inside the House of Assembly. That ha- that's what happens when you shove things through, right? That's I what agree. happens when you have things like omnibus bills. You know, intended to do one thing, but there's a few other odds and sods flicked in that don't get the scrutiny and attention they require. Next thing you know, we did something like that, which was completely avoidable. And, and, and Petty, just let people... People will be aware of this. The first hydro production is supposed to be the first quarter of 2024, okay? How many people know that the, with this uh, planned hydrogen production in 2024, with electricity is becoming supplied from the grid? How many people know that? Say that again? With the, the first hydrogen will come in 2024? Yeah. With electricity to the facility to be supplied by the existing electrical grill until the wind uh, windmill uh, is in operation. And, and they're looking at full production to achieve by the third quarter of 2025. How many people know that? This is the kind of information that's not put out there. Like, what are we going to charge them for, for, for power off the grid? What are we going to charge? What are, what's going to happen? And, Petty, I'll give a good example. And when you speak to a carpenter, when you speak to any carpenter, they always say, if your foundation is not solid, the house will not 
last. Yep. And if you don't have the foundation of doing an environmental impact study on the whole project, not just doing the buildings and not just using electricity from the, build, uh, from the Newfoundland Labrador grid to, to produce hydrogen at the beginning and say, okay, once we get the buildings done, they can't stop us then. They can't stop us. They got to give us phase two and three. This is fundamentally wrong. I said it, and I say it publicly again as a former minister. When you see this type of activity happening, you know someone is trying to circumvent the system. And when you get John Risley publicly stating that government told him just to put in the phase one, this is wrong, and put in... Can you imagine, Patty, right now people on Western Newfoundland, Western Newfoundland, especially in Bay St. George, had to put in comments about these windmills on land that they didn't even own, don't even know where it's going to be. Well, I mean, that's why I'm asking the questions. Uh, and it's not about whether this is good, bad, or my money, their money, Risley's money, the market, the viability. If there's questions that we need to ask, we're happy to ask them on this show, Eddie. We've been doing it all week, and we'll continue to do it next week because there's a lot to it. Uh, very quickly, wrap it up before I have to go to the break, Eddie. Petty, thank you again. It's all I call upon the government. It's all I call upon the government. And people are asking me, a lot of people, on that, because I haven't hit out out area yet because they didn't include... I call on Bernie Davis, the Minister of Environment and Collaborative Change. Cancel this environmental impact study and do the whole project as one. Don't let this uh, don't let this process be circumvented by someone putting in phase one just the buildings and we got to do phase two and three. You're doing a disservice to the environment and you're doing a disservice to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador who owns the environment here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks, Eddie. And I'm not against development. We just got to do it right if it's the right thing to do. Have a nice weekend, Eddie. Appreciate okay. the time. And thank you again for the opportunity. No problem. Bye-bye. It's Eddie Joyce, independent member for Humber Bay of Islands. Uh, and on the penalty that was paid because of the inadvertent expropriation of the mill, it wasn't $100 million, it was $130 million. You're absolutely right, Jason. And when we talk about the industrial application reservoir that's being used for this particular hydrogen uh, electrolysis, there's also mention from the mayor, Stephen himself, about some other for, uh, sources of water to be used. These are where some of the gray areas, the disconnects, the contradictions, make it a little bit more difficult to understand in full what's going on. Final break of the morning and the week. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line four. Mary, you're on the air. Uh, yes, good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, I'm calling basically to express my frustration on dealing with the Canada Greener Homes Program. I'm not sure if you've had any calls previous on this. No, we haven't. Um, so when back uh, the federal government announced in the previous year's budget about the allocation of funds to get your home assessed, et cetera, et cetera. So I started the process back in mine was done in May, and you have to pay up front for an assessment to get done, which will cost you basically nine hundred dollars. And then they make recommendations, and then all the things you have to do, yada, 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 and then submit your bill. Well, my, my stuff was done back in the early parts of May. I am still waiting on my money. And my, my problem with it is if they're trying to promote Canadians to get, you know, with the program, with the greener homes, and et cetera, et cetera, to, to have to fork out, uh, you know, copious amounts of money in advance 
and then wait for months. And when you try to contact them, the, one of the problems is you don't really speak to anybody. They'll say they'll get back to you. If you email them, they'll tell you we'll take, get this, up to 40 business days to reply to an email. I'm going to guess that there is a huge number of people who have applied, just like when there was the residential uh, subsidy coming from the province here to do some improvements to your home. Uh, I can't remember all the details of the greener home, but the upfront cost for an assessment or an evaluation, 900 bucks, you can get up to, I think it was five or 600 bucks back from the federal government. You can get up to $5,000 maybe for the retrofits itself. There was also an interest-free loan available, wasn't there? Yes, there was, and that's like if you needed it. Now, I mean, I didn't mind forking out, you know, and I'm not, you know, suffering from waiting for the money. It's just the principle of the matter. I find it frustrating is that you're dealing with a portal that uh, is on, on the computer, and it's the communication of that back and forth of what you need to submit, whether it's been submitted correctly, and so on and so forth. And then mm-hmm. if they send you back say additional information you do not hear from them and yes i also took part in that uh, provincial initiative uh, at the beginning of covid in 2020 and that ran much smoother I mean, you almost got your money fairly quickly, right? Well, you're lucky because we did it too, and we waited forever. I was getting oh. extremely frustrated with it. But I'm guessing that's part of what's the big delay with the federal government. It's not me defending them. I'm just thinking that it's probably the exact same set of circumstances where people like me waiting for provincial money had to wait so long. I hope you get your money as soon as possible. I would like to know just how many applications, this is the information we can never get. We're told things just, you know, blanket statements. Well, we're experiencing huge volume of calls or huge volume of applications. Okay. Okay, tell me how many people applied for help with the evaluation. How many people applied for the grant? How many people applied for the loan? So that we can help justify or understand exactly why things take so long. Well, exactly. And and you also have, like, I recommend a program to other people on my street who they did it and they got got their money. Oh, my. And so then I also went through the process of contacting my MP, which I never do. And that, too, has been a bit of a frustrating thing. Of I started that process back in July, and they'll get back to you every two weeks and say, uh, have you heard anything back from them yet? So that's been a bit iffy as well. And I just find that the whole communication process is really lacking, right? As a rule, that's sort of how government operates, isn't it, Mary, unfortunately? It- yeah, and so, uh, but I just I w- didn't know whether it had been an issue with other people or whatever. And I, while I applaud the government and having these initiatives, it is frustrating when you're waiting, you know, now going into four months, right? Understood in full. I appreciate the time this morning, Mary. Thanks a lot. Okay, you have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Let's see if we get a couple in here quick. Uh, line three. Peter, you're on the air. Yeah, I'm telling you. Talking about the religion, I guess, uh, the Catholic faith and uh, what's been after taking place over the past number of years regarding uh, scandal in our churches and things like that. I'd just like to uh, say uh, I'd like to uh, thank uh, Andrew Daly or Daly family, I'm sorry, Daly family uh, for uh, doing what they did. And maybe that's leading the way for other small towns such as Southern Harbor and things like that to... Uh, who was uh, pretty well, I'd say, 90% Catholic uh, to uh, 
find a way to uh, keep the churches in their community. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I think it was a real good start. And uh, other thing i like to say, uh, like, thanks again to the Daily family. And uh, I think it was really, really generous, and it came from the heart. But having said that, you know, like, uh, in the Catholic Church, I just... Uh, I just like to say, maybe, maybe it's a beginning. Maybe we needed to get rid of the, some of the the things that were happening there. No, maybe we did need to get rid of the the, the pedophiles and things like that in, in the Catholic Church, uh, who was mostly clergy. And uh, maybe this is a fresh start. And uh, that that's uh, basically what I got to say. Like I know time is of essence right now for you, but. Uh, you know, like, uh, there, there's different ways you can go. Like, there's deacons, and then Pope Francis, uh, he left it there so uh, women can become deacons. And uh, all we need is uh, the building, and uh, they can be married. They can be uh, homosexual. They can be Lisbon. It doesn't really matter. Or they can be single. And uh, either or can can be a deacon, and uh, they live in the community and uh, probably serve a couple of different uh, parishes. They can preach, read, spit in one of the best homilies you could ever hear. And, uh, you know, I know our priests are getting older, uh, Patty, but, uh, you know, we're going to have to find a way to keep going on. And uh, I think just, just this is just one of the ways. And all the more priests that want to join, by all means, but if there's a shortage of priests, well, you know, like I think the deacon is the, is the answer in this particular case. They get baptized, they get married, uh, they could bury, and uh, just my background in the Catholic Church, my grandfather and grandmother were Catholic, and then my mother and father had seven siblings, and they, we always practice, and then we, our children, they practice, and now our grandchildren are still practicing the day of the Catholic faith. So we're, and I'm not ashamed to be a Catholic. People are midfield to be ashamed to be a Catholic, but we have no reason as Catholics to be ashamed for what somebody else did to the church. Peter, appreciate the time this morning on the topic. Uh, I'm going to sneak you one quickie before I run out of time, but you have a nice weekend. We'll talk again soon. All the best, Patty. We'll bring it up some other time. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye. Last word, 30 seconds on the Bible race. Elnor, time starts now. Hi. How you doing, Patty? Fine, thanks. Elner. Oh, good to hear from you, and just wanted to quickly let everyone know that here at Manuals River, we're really interested in environmental protection and education, as some of your recent callers have been, and we have a fundraiser to help support that right now. It is our Bobber Race 5050. You can go to BobberRace5050.com. Our jackpot right now is already up over $51,000. There's just under two weeks left to get tickets. Deadline is September 7th uh, for ticket purchasing, and the draw will be September the 20th. So please head to our website there, BobberRace5050.com, or give us a call at 709-834-2099, and we would be happy to tell you a ticket over the phone if you prefer that. Sounds great. Good luck with it, Eleanor. Give us another call in a week or so to give it the final push. 
Will do. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, Eleanor. Bye-bye. That's Eleanor, of course, from the Manuel's River Interpretation Center. This weekend, the King George V is the Senior Women's Newfoundland Labrador Soccer Association Jubilee Cup Playdowns. 6 o'clock tonight, Holy Cross take on CBS. 8.30 tonight, the Felians take on St. John's. Both uh, the two winners play championship games Sunday, 3 o'clock. Get out and support the women on the pitch. All right, good show today and all week. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VO. CM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.